Hi, this is Tom Zania. The following Tom Read Your Story episode is an instant replay. We hope you enjoy it. A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the podcast that reads from your social media posts, online articles, and sometimes a surprise or two. So let's start the show. I'm your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for coming around once again to Tom Reads Your Story. Today, we have a very, very good audiobook recording that I did eh, kind of a long time ago, and it's by Steve Vernon. I'll be right back after this. Do you need a good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. And we are back. So, you have heard me in the past praise a certain author, a Canadian author named Steve Vernon. Well, I have another one of his short stories. I did several of them. And I'm going to play it for you today. It's called Cat Call. And now... Going back a bit, I have compared on the podcast Steve Vernon to Stephen King, and this is a good example of that comparison. Uh, It's a story about some young boys who are investigating a house that... uh, They aren't too sure about it. It might be haunted or something terrible might have happened there. It's an abandoned house, I think, if I'm not totally wrong about that. Anyway, uh, it's called Cat Call. There is a cat there, obviously. Um, I'm not much of a cat person. I'm a dog person, as many of my friends and relatives would easily agree with. Um, I did live uh, with a cat. One of my roommates, when I lived in Regal Park, Queens, had a cat. And she was very sweet. But unfortunately, uh, I had this recliner. It wasn't leather. It was fake leather. And uh, the cat, whose name was Zuzu, or Juju, if you want to call it that, ruined it inside of a few months. Just completely shredded the thing. And uh, 
that's not a good thing, really. I, I mean, I, uh, I can't honestly say that I used that chair a lot, but it was a recliner. It was something I, I would use at least once in a while, and when I did, I really enjoyed it. So anyway, I no longer have that chair, and uh, that's sort of my story about how I feel about cats. I don't hate them. Uh, I just prefer dogs. And uh, this story is about cats, not dogs. And I think you're really going to like it. I'm going to play the whole thing for you. Uh, Last two weeks, I played Lonely Magnolia in two episodes. Uh, I did first the first and second chapter, and I ended the story the following week, which was last week, with chapter three, four, and five. I hope you like that. I think it's a very, uh, I think it's a very good book. I, I'm maybe some people who would not like it. It didn't give perfect reviews on Audible. Uh, this got good reviews. Cat Call got very good reviews. And uh, it's one of my better recordings. So, without blabbing anymore, here is Cat Call by Steve Vernon. Cat Call Nobody really knew how long the old funnel mansion had stood empty, waiting up there high on Carpenter's Hill like a child's forgotten lunchbox, any more than anybody knew just how long that old gray cat had squatted in behind the screen of the front porch window. All we knew was somebody must be feeding it, because every now and then we would look in from the hedge on the far side of the yard and see the cat nibbling daintily on what looked to be raw hamburger. Guts, proclaimed Jeremy Hooter, making a thick, juicy, swizzling noise with his lips and tongue pressed against his stainless steel braces. It's guts, is what it is. Great big gobs of all guts, amplified Charlie Roundbert. Charlie Roundbert was only half of Jeremy's size and age, but he might as well have been Jeremy's shadow. The two boys stuck together just that closely, and yet, as far as I knew, the two of them never had anything nice to say to each other. Owl guts, Charlie repeated. We all took up the chant except Jeremy, who didn't think it was funny at all. Owl guts, owl guts, owl guts. Owl was what we always called Jeremy because of his last name. It didn't help that Jeremy wore a pair of glasses that made Coke bottle bottoms look like microscope slides. The glasses always reminded me of Dr. Cyclops. You know the guy from the movies? It always looked to me like Jeremy was staring at us through a microscope, like we were some kind of alien bacteria from Planet X. I had a microscope given to me on my 10th birthday. Not one of those little bitty plastic toys they sell with the chemistry sets you order from the Christmas catalog, but a big old-fashioned kind that my dad found in a basement he'd been paid to empty. The basement had belonged to old Doc Hawkomer, and when the doctor saw the microscope, he told my dad to go ahead and take it. He had a new one he used anyways. My dad always said that the microscope was probably contaminated with all kinds of plagues and diseases, and he was likely being ten kinds of an idiot giving it to a kid like me. I told my dad not to worry. Germs didn't stick to dead things like microscopes and houses, 
Germs stuck to people. Germs needed meat to feed on, and he probably shouldn't worry so much. I knew he wasn't being all that serious anyways. He was my dad, and the only person I had in this world, next to my dog Riley. The only difference was, Dad was real. Riley had been real, but he was imaginary now, since the timber truck ran over him. I knew my dad liked to worry about me, like it was his hobby or something, and I loved him for this worry, imaginary or not. I got Riley from my mom when I was two. Riley was a big black Labrador retriever, with feet as big as snowshoes in the pictures we have of him. We don't have too many pictures of Mom, because it was my mom's camera, and Dad never felt that comfortable using it. He's got his own camera now, and he uses it whenever he can. Riley was my dog, and he would play fetch with me with a worn-out baseball from the time the sun got up in the morning until the time it crawled back into bed. He was killed when I was eight years old because of a ball I had misthrown. The ball bounced out into the roadway, and Riley followed the lure of the ball like a trout following a wriggling worm. The truck rolled over him before I even had a chance to scream. I got Riley when I was two, and my mom died when I was three, and Riley died when I was eight. And I can still remember how I used to stare into his big black jujube eyes and see my mother smiling out from inside those eyes. I loved Riley better than I loved spaghetti. And I love spaghetti a lot. Dad said I got my spaghetti-eating habit from my mom. Back before the accident. Back when Mom was alive and she loved eating spaghetti more than anything. I can still remember seeing her with two long strands of spaghetti hanging from out of her mouth like a Fu Manchu sort of mustache until she sucked them right back up, giggling all the way with a big, loud, slooping sound. It was the only memory I had kept of her. My mom died when I was awfully young. A car wreck, Dad told me. It was a rainy October night, and the car wheels couldn't hold to the road, and there was a sudden blast of lightning like somebody jumped out and said boo, and then Dad lost control of the wheel, and they slid up against that big old beech tree down at the foot of Carpenter's Hill. Dad had remembered to buckle up, so he only twisted his back and broke his face against the dashboard. But Mom forgot to buckle up. So she went spilling right through the window glass and into the tree. And Dad told me once one late night that he still saw the color of her blood in the leaves of that tree every autumn. My dad walks with a limp because of that crash, and his left eye has a strange tilt to it from where his face was broken. His face sort of looks as if he is always getting ready to cry, and every October he carries a bouquet of quiet red roses up the side of Carpenter's Hill to the town cemetery where my mom is sleeping. Jeremy, who is older than I am, told me once that he had watched from the bushes as the police ambulance medics scraped my mom off of the trunk of the tree like she was so much hamburger meat. I told him he was a liar. I said that there was no way that would happen, that you just couldn't make a person into hamburger meat. We got into a fight over that, and he probably would have beaten me up, but I think he felt bad for what he said to me. 
Jeremy had said to me that some of the pieces of my mom had been so small that the police had needed a microscope to find them. I liked my microscope a lot. In the summer, I liked to mix swamp water and hay in a big mason jar and let it sit and steep out back behind the old garage where the sun always shines until my dad would say something to me about that unholy stink and I would take the water and make as many slides as I could and would dump the rest of it out back in the ditch. The ditch always smelled like swamp water, although I blamed the smell on Jeremy because he liked to pee in the ditch whenever he came over to visit. The slides were always different. I liked to see paramecium and amoeba and all kinds of other things that I didn't know the names of. I asked my dad once where they'd all come from and how they got into the water. He said some of them were probably in the swamp water to begin with, and some of them were in the hay. Only the ones in the hay were sleeping, like seeds waiting to be rained on and hatched. Dormant, he called it, like they were waiting behind some kind of door. I also liked to look at the hydro plants that I found under the lily pads of the swamp behind the school. I would wade out into the swamp in my big rubber boots that used to be Dad's until they started the leak. One day I got caught in the mud and nearly sucked under, and my friends had to run for my dad. Dad waded out to get me. And then for a while, I thought he was going to get stuck too. And then I had this crazy picture in my mind of the whole town being out here, stuck in the muck, waiting for the frogs and the leeches and the mosquitoes to suck us all dry. Only Mr. Thornton came along with a big old rope and pulled the two of us out of there before the leeches, frogs, and mosquitoes had a decent chance to get us. After that, my dad told me to stay away from that swamp. He told me that three winters before I was born, two ice skaters went down through the ice and didn't come back up. My dad believed that because of the swamp had developed a taste for people, and it was just waiting for its next meal to come along, like some kind of giant Venus flytrap. Jeremy had a Venus flytrap plant that his mother bought at a county fair. In the summer, it was too hot to do much of anything else. We used to watch it take flies luring them in slowly and then snapping them up like good old Godzilla. I wanted a plant just like it for the longest time, but my dad wouldn't buy one because he said we didn't need it. My dad was the town's champion fly swatter. He took pride in the fact that he could snag a house fly with his bare hands. You've got to watch for that hand-washing motion that flies make, he told me one too many times. When they make that hand-washing motion, you know that they are too busy thinking about washing their hands to think about jumping into flight, so you can grab them because they aren't really looking for it. Right, Dad, I said. If Chismar's Grossateria ever closes down, we'll be able to live off the flies you catch for us. I like going down to Chismar's Grossateria because it always smelled of the fresh pies that Mrs. Chismar baked every day. Sometimes apple, sometimes peach, but best of all was her blackberry pie. Dad always said that Mrs. Chismar's blackberry pie made your belly want to climb out of your stomach and dance itself a jig for sheer joy. I always told my dad that your belly was your stomach, but that never stopped him from slapping his stomach every time he walked into Chismar's Grossateria and smelling those pies and telling Mrs. Chismar that her apple pie made his belly want to climb out of his stomach and dance. The neatest part of Chismar's Grossateria was the big meat shop out back where Mr. Chismar worked 
I didn't really like the sound of the butchering that you heard every Monday morning, and the thick, chewy whiz of the meat saw always made my belly want to climb out of my stomach and puke. But the sight of the dancing flypaper covering in all those flies was really neat. It was like a kind of hanging jewelry, only it was alive, and while Dad ordered the meat, I liked to try and count the flies that were stuck on each strip. Mr. Thornton used flypaper in the school washroom once, because the old plumbing didn't work so well. The pipes didn't suck the water down quickly enough. The water that didn't go down the drains left a smell that the flies liked to follow, so Mr. Thornton hung flypaper up to catch them. Mr. Thornton was the school caretaker. He made sure everything stayed clean. My dad always called him a janitor, and when I asked Dad once what the difference was between a caretaker and a janitor, he said, Listen, you can call a turd full of freshly dropped cow pie a bouquet of daffodils, if you want to do, but that doesn't do anything about the stink. It was the same thing about the funnel house. It wasn't really a house, as far as we kids could tell. It was more like a piece of leftover Halloween decoration, like the old school float that Vice Principal Bindles parked in his garage all year waiting for the Fourth of July parade. It really wasn't a float. It was just an old dory that Vice Principal Bindles covered with tissue paper flowers and nailed to a nearly broken trailer. It still stank of fish, even though it hadn't touched an ocean for more years than I was old. But it was our school float, and every 4th of July, Vice Principal Bindles and whoever was crazy enough to help him made new flowers and repainted the parts that showed and wheeled it out and hooked it up behind Vice Principal Bindles' old Oldsmobile for the whole town to see. It really wasn't much of a parade when you think of it. It was just the school float and a band of marching musicians that sounded worse than cats screaming at midnight a wagon full of puppies that old lady cray would drag along behind her with bows around each of the puppies that she was trying to find a home for before she had to take them out and drown them in the swamp and a big old model t that sounded noisier and smelled worse every year and then there was the town mayor sitting in the back of a dirty red pickup truck on a throne made out of moose and deer antlers and was supposed to represent our frontier heritage. It wasn't much of a parade at all, as far as I was concerned. It was more just a habit that folks had never learned to unstick themselves from. So, one hot summer day, me and my imaginary dog Riley, and Jeremy Hooter and Charlie Roundbert, and a half-dozen other kids, were up on Carpenter's Hill in the hedge, outside the funnel house, taking dares on who'd get close enough to spit on the porch. The hill was kind of a fun place to be because you could look down from it and see the whole town laid out like a summer picnic. The funnel house was the highest place in town, next to the old water tower, and that didn't really count because the house was on a hill, which made it even higher than the tower. Folks always expected the tower to be hit by lightning one night, and there were those who swore it had been struck two or three times since Old Man Funnel was hauled away to the county nuthouse. Old Man Funnel was crazier than a black bear with a beehive jammed up his bunghole, Jeremy Watts said. My dad told me Old Man Funnel fed his wife and daughter into a meat grinder because he thought they were getting ready to leave him. 
He fed them right into a meat grinder, and then he fed the meat to his cat. So I guess maybe you could make a person into hamburger meat, if you tried hard enough. Being up here on Carpenter's Hill was a whole lot better than being at home because Dad would only make me slap one more coat of red paint on our old garage. Even though the wood was so dry, it reminded me of the desert in those cool Clint Eastwood spaghetti western movies, especially because of the way that it sucked up the paint, leaving the whole garage a sort of watered-down pink, like cotton candy barf. Dad said it looked like a Mexican cat house, only when I asked him what he meant by that, he got real quiet and changed the subject fast. The funnel house was surrounded by one of those big country hedges, the pricklish kind that snagged you like it was trying to eat you, one tiny nibble at a time, like it was sprouting out a thousand branches full of tiny petrified vampire mosquitoes. And when it came to that house, that was where we kids felt safest. Bet you can't get up there close enough to spit, said Jeremy to me. Jeremy was right. I had learned a long time ago that the words like bet or dare were just another way of asking if you were stupid enough to try. And I wasn't stupid, that was for sure. So how about you, Charlie? Jeremy asked. Are you chicken or what? Chicken was another word even bigger than dare or bet. Chicken was the line dragged in the dirt that always had to be crossed. Although I felt a little sorry for Charlie, I was very glad that Jeremy hadn't used the word chicken on Charlie and not on me. I ain't chicken, Charlie said. And before you could say spit, the bargain was sealed. Charlie approached the house cautiously in the same manner one might approach a bulldog on a chain. He tiptoed up carefully, because you knew that the dog would jump, and you never know just when that chain might decide to pop, leaving the dog free to rip out your throat and strew your lungs and liver like wrapping paper at a birthday party. And, of course, there was the cat, sitting as always high and watchful in that front porch screened window the big old scruffy gray tom with streaks of black and silver depending on how the sun shone upon his fur. And despite the cat's constant preening, it always seemed a little mangy, like the time Jeremy's dad had dressed up Jeremy's drunken Uncle Stu in his best suit and had taken him to church. Uncle Stu had snored through the whole entire service, only startling awake as each of the hymns began, and then just as quickly settling back down to sleep by the time we reached the second verse. I watched Charlie creep into the porch. I could hear the boards creaking as he crept, and I counted each board as it creaked. One, two, creak, three, creak. Charlie tapped the outside of the windowsill. I knew that the paint would have that awful chalky feeling paint gets after standing too long in the sun. That chalky, loose feeling like your skin gets after you've received a really bad sunburn. Here, kitty, 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 he began. The cat patted the window with one ineffectual paw. 
It was just so cute and so stupid-looking that we all had to giggle. Charlie giggled, too. Kitty, kitty, he spluttered through the giggles. The cat reared its paw back like it was about to swat a fly. Oh, my God, it's popped its claw. Charlie comically yelled back to us, still giggling. It's going to kill me. Kids always say kill when they have no real idea of what death really is. I knew what death was, because of my mom and Riley. I also knew there was no way a kid like Charlie or Jeremy would ever know what death really meant, until they had to live through it. Just like I had, and that wasn't something I would wish on anybody at all. Maybe he likes you. Jeremy shouted. Do you smell like cat food? Charlie looked back towards us and grinned. As he looked back, we really could see the cat popping its claws out further, because we could see the claws. Even from where we crouched in the hedges so far away, we could see the cat's paw. Suddenly, as big as Mr. Thornton's coal shovel, we could even see the shadow of the paw falling across Charlie's cheekbone. I was reminded of my dad's fly swatter, hand hanging suspended over a mindlessly hand-washing fly. I was about to scream when, before the breath was even in my lungs, the cat slammed its paw against the screen. The screen made a sound like a big steel guitar being slammed by an open palm as the cat shot its claws out like the tentacles of a hydra plant, shooting out like that squirt of medicine old Doc Hawkomer used to shoot out of his hypodermic needle before giving it to you in the arm. Then the cat had hold of Charlie, catching hold of him and hauling him straight through the screen just as slick as April floodwater sliding through the gullet of an iron sluice gate. Then there was blood all over, blood that slowly soaked into the shakes and shutters and screening of the house. We watched it and thought how it should have made some sort of noisy sucking sound, like the sound that bath water makes when it runs down the drain, but it didn't make any kind of sound at all. It was as silent as the sun-drying paint, and maybe that made it all the more scarier. And then the cat began daintily tapping at what was left of Charlie. Old Mr. Chismar would have known what to call what was left of Charlie. He would have called it ground chuck, like he was making a bad joke, only nobody was laughing. Then the cat looked up in mid-lap, and it stared right across the barren front yard, out to where I was crouching with my friends in the wicked thorn hedge. I had a sound in my head, and it was bigger than I bet you. The sound was even bigger than chicken. And then all at once I felt as if I really wanted to go up to that porch to see just what exactly had happened to Charlie, for no particular reason at all, just because I'd heard that sound somewhere in the back of my head. And as I headed towards the porch, I wondered how many of the other kids had also heard that sound, how many of them were following me up to the porch. I had a feeling it was all of them were walking right up to that porch, following that cat's eerie call, only something got in my way, like an invisible knee-high push, shoving me back towards the safety of the hedge, and all those kids who were following me turned back as well. I shook my head, like I had fallen off my bike, 
and then I realized what I'd been about to do. I had been just about ready to walk right up onto that porch, right up to that screen window, and let that cat grab hold of me and yank me straight through the screening, just like Charlie. Then I heard something else. We all heard it. We heard barking. All of us swear we heard barking, like it was coming from a long way off, from out of a cave or a well hole or a sewer pipe, and I kept feeling that hurting motion at my knees, like I was being shepherded to safety. The cat just sat there in the window, glaring and hissing as the barking grew louder, and I shuddered to think of what might have happened had I walked on up to that porch. And then I realized who'd saved me. It was Riley. Get him, Riley, I shouted. Get that damned old cat. Any other time the other kids might have looked around nervously to see if any adults were listening to hear one of us swear. But this time, when I swore, it was like when Charlie talked about owl guts, and they all took up the chant like it was some kind of crazy skipping game. Get him, Riley! Get that damned old cat! We started shouting. All of us stood in the hedges like soldiers in a trench, shouting like our words were hand grenades and bullets, but it was the barking that was doing all the damage. The barking got so loud it sounded like a big old timber truck barreling down on us, and then the cat's eyes abruptly widened, and it screeched as if somebody had thrown a bucket of cold scrub water on its back, and then... It just plain disappeared. Jeremy swears he saw it jump down from the windowsill into the house, but I know better than that. I think Jeremy is only kidding himself, so that someday he'll stop peeing the bed at night when he dreams about what happened to his best friend Charlie. The cat just up and disappeared. Like it was some kind of a ghost, or maybe worse. There was a bit more barking after that, and then, from out of nowhere, directly in front of the front porch window, a high arc of yellow fluid sprinkled out from midair, landing with a satisfying sizzle hiss on the front porch floorboards, like a mouthful of spit hitting onto a red hot fry pan. And I saw those porch floorboards trying to soak that yellow fluid up, only they couldn't. I saw those porch floorboards hacking that ghost Riley P. back out, like a cat might hack up a furball, only those floorboards just couldn't seem to lose the tattletale stain. The territory had been firmly staked out. Piss on you, house cat, I hissed. Piss on you in pussycat hell. I told my dad this story just last week just before he took his long walk up the side of Carpenter's Hill with his bouquet of quiet red roses. It had taken me more than two months to finally work up the nerve to tell him. By then, the whole town had finished searching for little Charlie Roundbird and had decided that he had probably wandered off somewhere and was eaten by a wild creature or waylaid by a wandering tramp, which was sad to think of it. But it was a whole lot better than knowing the truth. I told my dad the whole story, 
knowing full well that he likely wouldn't believe a word of it. But he only listened quietly and repeated his warning about the swamp behind the school. I guess he didn't figure I needed any warning about the funnel house. Then he stepped outside and closed the door and walked up the hill to where my mom slept. And after that I found out that he'd walked the rest of the way up Carpenter's Hill to where the old funnel house stood. He brought his camera, and while he was up there, he emptied a whole roll of film. Two weeks later, after the film came back to Lalonde's drugstore, my dad showed it to me. The cat was in the window, like I'd expected it to be. But sitting on the porch, right where someone or something would be able to keep careful watch on the cat, was a well-chewed rubber ball and a single sun-dried blood-red rose. The End Quite the story. Steve Vernon's Cat Call. I very much hope you liked it. So that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. Portions <clears throat> portions were pre-recorded. Tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.